A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. On today's episode of Free Exchange, we're going to discuss one of the trendiest and most radical ideas around, universal basic income. It has all sorts of high-profile advocates, including Mark Zuckerberg and Richard Branson. The idea, now popular on the left, actually started out on the libertarian right, with Friedrich Hayek, a particularly vocal cheerleader. Um, another cheerleader of the policy is Sam Dimitriou, who is head of research at the Adam Smith Institute and recently wrote on CapEx um, in support of a universal basic income. Rob Colville, CapEx's editor-in-chief and the director of the Centre for Policy Studies, disagrees and has also written for CapEx explaining why basic income is a particularly bad idea. So uh, we're here today to, um, to thrash out the issue. And uh, Sam, I'll start with you. What is it about basic income that has people from such different ends of opposite ends of the political spe- spectrum, so excited? Well, I, I can't necessarily speak to the left-wing side of the case because I think they tend to want things from it that I, I wouldn't want. If everyone became a poet after basic income, I would say that's a very, it's been clearly a very bad policy. If, we, if, we'll be, you know, if we're all spending our days just you know, working on poetry or doing painting. I think probably the main appeal is that it reduces complexity and it reduces the sort of perverse incentives of the welfare system. So um, I'll give you an example on the complexity front. Mm-hmm. So you compare something like... Uh, job seekers allowance to something like child benefit where the assessment costs are much much lower for child benefit so it's about three and a half percent of the amount of money spent i think on job seekers allowance that goes straight into uh admin costs and about one percent on child benefit so immediately you get more bang for your buck but also it deals with these sort of perverse poverty traps so you have these situations where we have the sort of you know what harold wilson level tax rates on uh, people going from uh, not being in work go- and then having to go into work and realising they're not actually that much better off. And that tends to, I think, disincentivize people taking lots of jobs. So I think those, those are the two sort of theoretical appeals that have been popular over time. But I think one other area is that it also gives us a way to deal with in-work poverty. So if in the future we have a sort of more polarised labour market, if the way technology goes, there's people at the 
top doing very well, but a lot of the middle level jobs, so things like accountant and lawyer, where you'd be expecting only 30 to 40k or something like that, those jobs might disappear or there might be fewer of them. So more people might be at the lower end of the income scale. You, it would be useful to have a policy that can address sort of poverty at the lower end for people in work, especially because I think people might uh, try and fight furiously to maintain their jobs, throwing up all sorts of issues about things like occupational licensing, regulation to prevent automation. We've, I've, I mean, we've heard about some people calling for robot taxes. I think this is a better alternative than those things. So I think that's why it's particularly appealing recently and particularly appealing to people like Mark Zuckerberg or Mark Andreessen. So Rob, it's the, it's the least bad option then when you look at the ways of responding to various uh, technological changes? Well, the problem I have with uh, UBI as, as, it's, as it's, I'm not, I'm not going to say supporters call it, call it I'm going to say it's as its fans call it. Um, the problem we have with UBI is it's such a hipster policy. <laughs> it, is, it is the smashed avocado toast of, of policies. It's, you know, it's, I mean, genuinely, I, had the, I have not commented on a policy on Twitter and had actual fanboys come at me. I mean, there, is, there, were like, you know, there are like UBI fan accounts out there who are kind of searching the web constantly for any mention of their, belo- their beloved uh, thing and for a chance to sort of chime in. It's, it's got this kind, of, this kind of aura to it about, um, you know, that it can be the solution to all, to all of our problems. And it just, it just can't. It's, I mean, I take Sam's point on the, um, on the complexity issue. Uh, I mean, it does, you know, it does have certain, you know, significant advantages. You know, it is a lot easier just to give people money or to let them keep their own money than to have people give their money to the state via taxes, and then for the state to kind of make a slightly complicated calculation about how much they, you know, they should get back, and then to funnel it back to them in about fifteen different uh, forms of welfare payment or tax credit, depending on what what sort of position you're in, and in, in terms of if your status in life or, or your family, you know. So I, I sort of completely get that. The issue I have with it is, I mean. Partly it's the, the, the way that it gets kind of wheeled out as a solution to everything. So Sam was talking about in-work, you know, the, the need to sort of top up in-work benefits. And I, I can sort of accept that. But the same people who are talking about that now were the people who two years ago were talking about UBI as the solution to automation creating mass unemployment. And then it, the problem for them is that mass unemployment hasn't happened. In fact, that we have record unemployment, so record employment rather. Um, so the people have sort of moved on to go, oh well, yeah, but it can, it can no, so instead it can solve. Uh, it's you know, a, the it's fact a that solution it, in search of a problem. It's a solution in search of a problem. Um, fundamentally, the the problem with UBI is that it is colossally expensive to do anything resembling a, a genuinely universal basic income um, at the sort of level which would give you a the kind of lifestyle where you can sit around and write poetry is just unaffordable. Um, to even to do it at the level where it it kind of provides roughly the level of, say, universal credit or you know the national living wage, that you know you, you know something a lot more a lot, lot more humble. You're still looking at a, a sort of vast levels of redistribution. Um, the Royal Society of Arts model, where I, I I mean I've got the figures here, but I think you get around three and a half k from it or something something like that. You know, which is not. Uh, yeah, three thousand six hundred and ninety-two in two thousand and twelve prices, and to annually do, that is. Yeah, and, annually. And so you so, get housing benefit as well on that. Well, and so and that's actually leaving out housing benefit because housing benefit is really really complicated. It's you. Know, that's that's only a quarter of the national living wage, and that's really you know 
still involves they can make they can just about make it work by setting it at a hugely low. The level. point is, if it was a genu- if it was a amount you could genuinely live yeah. off. Yeah, I mean, um, the Resolution Foundation um, they 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 came up with the UBI scheme, which is roughly at the level of universal credit, and you throw in universal child tax credit, and then um, to do that, you have to. Uh, basically abolish the personal allowance. So everyone who's getting this three and a half thousand is also losing that eleven thousand pounds tax free that they that they get. In fact, you would have to put one hundred and twenty billion pounds more of tax into the welfare state in order to make this thing work, which is the equivalent of the budget of the NHS. So whether you're taking that from the rich, although there aren't that many rich people, or from corporate taxation or whatever you're doing, it, it you have to whack up taxes quite hugely to make this thing work. And and then isn't there a uh, can, can I also talk about the moral side of it too i mean i um samuel from the adam smith institute um uh a i think you call yourselves a neoliberal think yes. tank is that right yes. um but th- there's a moral dimension to your work which is about uh individual freedom and the the, the, the sort of flip side of that is that there is no, no one would have a right to a sort of arbitrarily have a right to an amount of money that's tax of which is earned through tax on other people's work so you know what why why is that why is that okay from 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 your point of view well i think as a as i think that we tend to be consequentialist so we're we're focused on outcomes not on you know sort of the the process the way you get there um so i i think we don't we don't object to redistribution in principles a lot of times people try to do redistribution and it backfires but I don't think we're necessarily morally opposed. I do think there is a moral sense in the aspect of paternalism. So a lot of the ways we subsidise people on low incomes um, is quite paternalistic. We're not as bad as America where you have things like food stamps where you you have people talking about whether poor people should be allowed to buy soda with their their benefits or not. We're not not, not quite that far, but we have things like tax-free childcare, which is essentially subsidies for childcare. It's not, you don't, you know, get a, get an actual tax cut for that, or we have things where the the benefit goes straight to housing, uh, rather than you could say, well, maybe I'll take that housing benefit, move move to the north where the housing's half the price, and then live quite large otherwise. So you have lots of aspects where it's quite paternalistic and quite uh, decides exactly what certain individuals should do. There's also, and that's that's also a problem with whether or not people should take certain jobs. So sometimes people might be pushed into a job too soon when their job search might have been better if they waited a month or two two more. So these are sort of real problems, I think, from, I guess, a moral perspective, because you, you, you restrict choice in quite a significant way. But if you wanted to, let's take the issue of uh, in-work poverty, which is one of the reasons you, 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 you support a basic income. If you wanted to help people in work, isn't this isn't the most simple way of doing that just to cut their taxes even more? Okay, well, I, I think one of the points is that we should think of the UBI or the negative income tax or whatever sort of version of it, or even things like earned income tax credit, which is sort of a negative income tax UBI's thing, provided that you're in work in the first place in, in America. So I think all of these sort of policies, we should look at the the post-tax and benefit, what your actual tax rate is. So I think in that sense, it probably actually means your net of tax and benefits it is lower anyway. So you so cutting cutting taxes at the lower end, that can help, but the problem is you end up cutting taxes at the other end too. So you don't necessarily target it particularly well. But I, I'd like to come back on the cost point, if I may. Um, I think it depends how you look at basic income. So first of all, 
I'm quite keen on basic income emphasizing the basic part, right? So I, I don't I don't want it to be you know an alternative to a job necessarily. I want if if you had to if you had to live off it, you could just about live off it. But I don't want people to just completely leave the labour force. Some of the trials originally where they looked at basic income. Uh, the ones that Dick Cheney carried out uh, when he with Donald Rumsfeld, um, they had uh, about 150% of the poverty line. I think that's probably too generous. But we don't we don't want to necessarily say, look, this is how much we spend on welfare. Let's just divide it evenly and give it to everyone. And I don't think we also want to say, look, this is how much we give someone on welfare. Let's give that amount to everyone. I think there's always going to be a way of how you claw that money back. So one way you can do it is by doing it directly through the tax system. So your UBI, so the quote by a guy called Sam Hammond at the Niskanen Centre, um, is that UBI is a negative income tax with a very leaky bucket. So you essentially you get that UBI and slowly it's taxed away from you. I think you probably want that bucket to be slightly leakier than uh, you would just through the tax system. So that's why. So, we, so, so just just for the benefit of readers who haven't uh, who aren't really familiar with all these. So universal basic income is the idea that you get a certain amount of money. From the, everyone gets a certain amount of money from the state, and and that's kind of it. There's no there's no unemployment benefit on top. There's no um, in some versions of this. There's no kind of NHS or education system on top of that. You just you get enough of a UBI that you can then use that to purchase uh, health and education and whatever you whatever else you may need. And some versions of the UBI UBI you adjust for housing costs. Some of them you adjust for whether people have kids or not. You know, there's lots of different versions. The negative income tax, which is the sort of Hayek Friedman uh, take on this is where, and Sam, please okay, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. Is essentially where, rather than your tax, rather than your 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 bill with HMRC starting at zero every year, it starts at sort of say minus five thousand pounds, so that you get that five thousand pounds from HMRC um, just for being you, um, and then as you, but as you earn, that gets kind of. That gets whittled away and away and away, so that you know by the time you're earning ten thousand pounds, you're only getting two and a half thousand pounds. By the time you're earning twenty thousand pounds, you're earning, you know however you however you mm-hmm. do it. Essentially, so that um, which which so it, universal basic income stops being quite so quite so universal. Um, the, the two of them these sort of seem quite different, but are actually the sort of the same thing, just with greater or le- lower levels of um, of conditionality uh, to them. Mm. On the um, on the universalism or the universal point to do with um, UBI, why why does it need to be universal? I mean, couldn't you exclude a huge proportion of of the population that don't need um, government support without really making it that much more complex? Well, that's where the clawback comes in, basically. Right. So, you know, the the, the example I think uh, Ben, who used to do my job at the ASI, uh, he gave is let's say the government gives you seven hundred pounds, so you have a fifty percent clawback rate, basically. So each hundred pounds you earn, you lose fifty pounds for that initial seven hundred pounds. That's a lot more. That's less of an extreme clawback than you get currently mm-hmm. under the welfare system. Yeah, and so, so one of the principles behind this, and one of the attractions behind it, is that it, it always pays to do extra work. You're never having that situation mm. where, where when you get getting more income, suddenly you're finding that because of the way the tax system works, you're actually you're actually out of pocket. Um, isn't isn't an interesting uh, on, on this point about because obviously the, one of the big things it has going for it is simplicity um, and uh, the ease with which you can you can do it all. That was one of supposedly one of the um, the great things about uh, the the benefit system reforms 
a conservative government uh, brought through. Um, universal credit was supposed to be this thing that was didn't create any perverse incentives and was much was much neater and simpler way of of the government supporting people. And then, in fact, we found that when they actually put the thing into practice, um, a there's still lots of problems which may yet be ironed out to, that don't necessarily you don't necessarily solve the incentive problems. And b it's extremely complicated. So, is there maybe a lesson in there for for the for the UBI fanboys? I think that's why it probably should be trialed very heavily first. So, it, you know, you need to do pilot ski. If you're going to do something so significant, you need to pilot in about 20 different ways to work out which was the best option, I think. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, one of the objections I have to, to, to UBI is actually, is actually in terms of its impact on the welfare system. It sounds very, very cool to say it, but the lesson of the last 20 years is that the most popular, the, the best way of getting people into the workforce is to stop giving them welfare. I mean, this was the sort of the principle behind the Wisconsin reforms in the US, which then became well out in several other states and then became the principle behind new labor welfare reforms and then the coalition's reforms. One of the reasons we have this incredibly good record of job creation in this country is because we've made it progressively harder to be on welfare unless you really, really, really need it. Well, one of the things we need to think very, very carefully of when we're designing the EBI system is whether we are creating incentives not to work which for actually quite a lot of people is the attraction to UBI because it's, you know, there's lots, lots of stuff about, you know, restoring human dignity and how horrible it is to be shelf, stack, shelf stackers and all the rest of it. Whereas then the other argument of that is the, is the dignity of labour and the way that the fact that you can climb up, you know, the, you know statistics show that, you know, even if, if, it's, if even it's not a great job, having a job is just the, the single best thing you can do to get you know, the, that gets you out of poverty. Although obviously we do have issue, these tremendous issues with with wages and, uh, and unemployment. The, the the problem with all of this though is, the more you think, start thinking about these things, and the more you build in kind of exemptions and sort of say, oh yes, well people with more kids obviously they'll need a bit more money, mm -hmm. and people who are disabled well they'll need more money, and people who are living in areas like London with really really high house prices well they need a bit more money, and, and people people like, people like Richard Branson of course they don't need to get it, you know, and um, you know elderly pensions, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the more <laughs> the more you you start building in exemptions, the more you end up with something which looks like a welfare system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One of the, one of the main uh, reasons, Sam, you, you, you say you support it is, is as a response to um, technological change. So AI means that, you know, could mean that lots of jobs don't exist. You, to be fair to you, you're not, you're not actually arguing that, that you think that's going to happen. But, I mean, you don't think this is... A, you're not apocalyptic about it. Well, I, I don't think we're going to reach a point where suddenly people are unemployed and they're unemployed for good. But mm-hmm. you certainly, I think you'll see something like you've seen with sort of globalisation, where certain areas, certain industries, people take quite a long time to reskill. So while on average unemployment might stay quite low, there might be certain areas where that becomes quite significant. And I think you might also see some of the jobs replacing uh, the current jobs as not quite as good. So it might be the classic sort of, I used to work in a steel factory, now I work in a call centre sort of issue going on. And I think I think one of the reasons is that automation, I think we've had the first wave of automation has been pretty good at automating tasks that we don't do very well so we don't we're not very good at calculating very very large numbers we're not very good at like building cars with our hands but one of the things we've had an advantage over is the fact that it's very hard to explain how to do something like say lift up a glass and have a have a sip of it you know you actually think okay now I have to tw- tilt my arm 30 degrees and I have to do this and I have to Sam, adjust for the way. For listeners Sam is performing this task yes. before I rise <laughs> impeccably. Um, and all these sort of things, it's very, very hard to actually explain what to do and very hard to instruct a computer to do it instead. But the big change is that artificial intelligence sort of is taking the sort of trial and error approach of evolution. And so a lot of those tasks where it's something like, which legal documents do I need from, you know, I'm trying to sue a pharmaceutical company and they've given us 500,000 pages of documents. I need 30 people to filter through these. These sort of things, actually, AI is getting quite good at finding the relevant information. And these are things that we used to think, at least, that you would need a human for. So so the complementarity side of things might change quite a bit in the future. We might find new jobs, but we might. it might also be the case that some of those jobs earn a lot more than we currently earn. Some of those jobs earn towards the lower scale of the income. And I think that is a risk. So I think you do need something to say that the people who don't end up with these lower skilled jobs don't want to like hold back on automation, hold back on AI, you know, bring in sort of regulations, what you can do with data, which you need for the AI to work in the first place. Regulations on say, if you're gonna automate your workforce, you have to pay them extra and give them a huge redundancy baggage. All these sort of things have been floated by politicians on the left and some even people in the center. And I think that is kind of worrying and that would make us all worse off. So I think, if that's the prospect, this might actually be the best option. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can sort of see that, but I, it feels like it's, again, we were talking about a you know, solution in, in search for a problem. You know, when we get to that, 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 that great end state, then, or as we approach that, even as, as we approach it, then I think we need to start, start thinking about this stuff. But at the, at the moment, there's just not enough money to do it. And, you know, <laughs> there may be enough money from taxing all the people who are in the, who are in the robots. Uh, but you know, isn't the other point that I mean, Sam's to his credit is presenting a much more nuanced account of what technology is doing could do to jobs. But if when you read these accounts, these kind of hellscapes in which uh, you know Mark Zuckerberg owns all the means of production and there's nothing useful for anyone else to do, uh, this clever po- po- policy isn't you know that's not going to sort of change the essential facts of that economic situation, which are are not kind of 
which you know won't save it won't save us. Well, from... well you know, well, the, you, even back in the thirties, Keynes was. Is it Keynes or Keynes? I'm never even sure. I always go with Keynes, but we call it Milton Keynes. So, mm. Although, but, that, but I don't think it's named after him. Uh, is it? No. But and, anyway, that interesting <laughs> digression. Um, I think um, even back in the 30s, uh, Keynes was talking about the um, technological unemployment, the idea that you know uh, there are going to be people, the, 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 the sort of move towards greater technology use, greater productivity, is going to throw people uh, off the... Um, uh, out of work, and you know, there was this sort of idea that you know we were his idea then, which now seems laughable, was that we would channel the gains of all of this into increased leisure time, so that yeah, yeah. Um, we would only you know we we would cut our working hours to one day a week, and then spend four four days a, four days a week playing water polo. Uh, whereas in fact, what happened was we we all just worked worked harder and harder and harder, and uh, you know, bought Netflix subscriptions and uh, tried to you know try to get bigger houses uh, on a sort of you know incrementally uh, you know. Where sort of two bed flats only starts costing about you know more money than anyone has ever earned in their entire lives. Um, but so that you know, so that there, there's there's still this, this, so there's this this idea that you know it may well be that we get to the stage where there's actually not that much humans can do, and maybe we all do sit around writing poetry. Um, but also, I thought I sort of feel there's a sort of weird combination of optimism and pessimism about humanity in in the quite a lot of the UBI UBI talk the the pessimism talk is the idea that we won't find new things to do and that we are all just passive victims of these great technological forces and then the optimism thing is that if we had UBI suddenly we would all be sitting there writing sonatas or setting up microbreweries or doing kind of doing clever and, and wonderful and compelling things and we would all find joy and dignity in our life. I, you know, based on my experience of my own character and, and that of many other people, I suspect we would just watch Netflix. We would be on the sofa watching an awful lot of Netflix. Which probably wouldn't be as bad as us all sharing our, our kind of rubbish poetry with each other the whole, the whole time. Um, but what about, I mean, now it's, the idea is so sort of in vogue that it's actually, there are a fair few sort of experiments with UBI going on, aren't there? So lots of these things can be, we can test what, whether people actually do end up watching Netflix or writing poetry. Well, the la- the, well just in the 60s, we, there, were, there was a wave where it looked very likely that Richard Nixon, uh, the, the far left Richard Nixon, was going to bring in the a, 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 program basic. De- a program designed by the even more far, far left Milton Friedman. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and the experiments were carried out by the extreme left uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. I think that's actually how Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney first sort of came into contact. Uh, but, so uh, you're saying you can blame the Iraq war on basic income? <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who, know, who knows? Um, <laughs> well, th- so they carried out initial studies. And one of the things that was quite interesting in the very initial studies was that uh, it, there, there was a real concern in the 60s in America that uh, the African-American family was disintegrating. So there's a real concern that uh, lots of people were growing up in fatherless households. And that was... And, they, and what they actually found is when they gave people a basic income, which was the equivalent of a uh, 150% of the poverty line, a lot of women left quite abusive husbands. Uh, and as a result, it seemed like the divorce rate had spiked. So that was one reason why it, it sort of got kiboshed at the time. But that actually found quite low responses. I mean, people worked a little bit less, but you were, remember you were comparing that with people who were on a very, very bare welfare system. So they, if you... Um, if your benefits ran out after about 12 weeks, I think you you sort of on your own. So that, that had changed quite a lot. But nowadays, lots of people are carrying out. So Finland, uh, they've got 
uh, a government who are very interested in running lots of experiments. Uh, of course, it's Finland, Finland as well as, <laughs> as a hipster policy. It would have to be, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, Estonia would be the... Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Sam. You, yeah. Yeah, so so Finland's new guy. So he's a he he's kind of like a a businessman who's come into politics, and so he's like, well, we run lots of experiments, we take lots of risk. Why don't we do that with policy? So he's carrying out some trials. They're quite generous, but I guess for Finland they don't seem quite as generous because in Finland the welfare state is already very very generous. Uh, they're also carrying some stuff out in Scotland on quite a small scale. Uh, they're carrying some stuff out in Canada, uh, and then Y Combinator, who are the uh, startup accelerator who funded Dropbox and Airbnb, uh, they are actually funding a big trial in Silicon Valley where they're going to look at some people who are unemployed and some people who aren't, and sort of see how that changes them. Uh, I'm quite, I'm quite interested to see what the results are, but I think probably in the in in the meantime we should sort of be considering to run some of these trials just because even if we don't, you know. So if we find out that the policy is a very bad idea and, and causes all these unintended consequences, it would be good for us to know them now before someone carries forward with it in, say, 20 years' time. And on the other hand, even if we don't come away with something saying, let's implement this now, it might teach us a lot more about how to actually run a welfare system. But I mean, the other thing with all of this is that uh, no one actually seems to have asked the voters. Which is another reason why it's a hipster policy. Because <laughs> I mean, our existing one of the sort of reasons that our existing welfare reforms have been a success is they they have been you know is, is that they are actually really quite popular. People genuine generally think you should get out what you put in, and they're not they're not in favour of the state giving people handouts. And you know, UBI is is kind of the antithesis of that in, in quite a lot of ways. I, I, the, the thing I keep coming back to is um, is a Labour MP, Karen Buck, who is you know who is you know, obviously a, a, a Labour MP. And she's saying, you know, I, re I really want to help the poor. But A, you know, the, the conditionality in the welfare we've put into the welfare system has worked very well to move people into work and has been very popular. But also, if you want to help the poorest in society, there are so many better and cheaper ways of doing it than this enormous uh, adjustment to the system. I mean, just for, just for one thing, you know, are we... Are we happy now? Are we happy to sort of suddenly shift the welfare system in quite a dramatic way so that couples do better than individuals? Because uh, that's one, you know, if you have a UBI, which is a universal basic income for every single person, then I, with my golden wedding ring, I'm going to be a bit more happy about it than someone who is, uh, you know, is sitting, is sitting alone and has suddenly seen themselves, uh, you know, penalised. Isn't that also the, uh, I mean, that's to me is one of the stronger objections to it is, uh, the, the 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 free market case. One of the free market cases for for UBI is that a simple chunk of cash from the government, or or how, however you administer it, basically counterintuitively sort of reduces the power of the state because you don't. It, it, it's not it's not down to arbitrary decisions of a bureaucrat to say you qualify yeah. for X, Y, or Z. But it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that UBI would actually somehow become this apolitical thing where it's not contested and it's not something where, as Rob says, you can introduce an incentive to be married or an incentive to do any other sort of thing. So is it this, in that sense, it, it's not sort of a liberating force in the way some think it might be? Well, I think that the fact it's better for couples is, is not necessarily that, you know, if we had nothing, it would be better for couples, but it's that the current system is quite bad for couples, it's quite bad for marriage. And this used to be a thing people cared quite a lot about. People tend to care a bit less about it now because 
kind of a bit, bit unfashionable to say that you don't want a welfare system encouraging <laughs> divorce. But that, but that seems to me a benefit of something like basic income. But that sort of proves my point because it's still going in. It's still not sort of neutral on these things. It's going into the content of how you should live your life. If you see what I mean, in, in, a, in a way that many of the libertarians asking for arguing for a UBI would say is, is you know, the good thing about it is that it doesn't do that. I think the status quo isn't neutral. And it actually is more neutral to what yes, individuals I, 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 would decide. I, I agree, but but one the, the the great lesson of politics over the last ever is that you know adjustments from systems do not take place with mm. with reference to what a, a neutral perfect world will be. It is whether I personally am losing out from this change, and you know any and and literally any version of UBI has losers as well as winners. Primarily, everyone who w- works and pays taxes. Uh, to do a rough approximation. Well, I, 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 not necessarily people are... I mean, it could be actually some people are who are currently unemployed would lose out and some people who are currently on low-income work would, would gain on the, on the winners and losers. But I, I, I think even if basic income or the negative income isn't necessarily a politically saleable idea now. I mean, we, you know, what, what's a politically saleable idea, you know, in the, last, in the past like two or three years has changed quite significantly. So I don't think we should just dismiss it on those grounds. But there are some things that quite mimic some of the features of basic income that I think work quite well. So the uh, earned income tax credit in America, which is sort of came out of the basic income debate, that essentially says if you are earning an income, then you can access this big credit, tax credit, basically. And it works essentially like a negative income tax would work, but only for people in work. That seems like it would be an improvement to me over the current systems. It's a lot simpler. And I think you know, there's lots but that's of just a way. Just to be clear, that's that's basically just a way of ironing out the incentives around welfare yeah. dependency and stuff. Yeah, and and in America, it's used as a as a, it's it's aiming to make people more likely to stay in relationships because it, it's I it's sort of only goes to sort of if you're in a couple and you're married and things like that, it favours them in that way. So it's not ideal in that sense, at least from sort of a liberal perspective, I think, but. It does seem to work very well at reducing poverty, at getting particularly women to work more. So I think that if you look at and if you look at the research, it seems like this is something that works very, very well. So I think things like tax credits, making them taking the insights from the debate about UBI and getting the good mm. stuff from the debates about the UBI. Perhaps not that everyone becomes a poet, but some of the stuff about poverty traps, some of the stuff about complexity and applying that to our current system of tax credits might actually make quite a big difference and help a lot of people and yeah, be critically I mean, viable. I mean, it, it, towards the negative, you know, the, the closer you go to the negative income tax end of the spectrum, the more, the more quite a lot of the objections to this Disagree. I think if you're talking, if you're talking about using it as a way to help the poorest and to help the people in, in in low wages and and targeting it quite closely at that, I I think there's a there is actually a lot to be said said for it, especially for incorporating those incorporating those kind of credits. What I sort of object to quite viscerally is this I this I this sort of starry eyed hipster version of it, which is uh, which where people start kind of talking about robots and. Solves every problem under the yeah, sun. Yeah, you know, there is a reason that John McDonnell likes this policy, and it's not that it has, it has robots <laughs> in it; it is that it has 120 billion pounds of extra taxes on the rich. Mm. Well, there's this, there's this thing I, I tweeted out a bit earlier. Uh, 
to do with land value tax. So everything I tweet, even though I'm relatively in favour of a shift towards property taxes, relatively in favour of shift towards land taxes, the people who are fans of land value tax are quite frankly bonkers. And they're like terrifying. I mean, you talk about the UBI people, I'm, you know, you, you ain't seen nothing except the people with uh, a little yellow and green little badge on their Twitter profile. Does that I mean, mean does that mean land value tax? Yes, apparently. I, I never, there I never go. knew this until very recently. But in, and it's, it's kind of like um, the joke I said was they're, they're like the TV show Rick and Morty. So I think it's a really funny show. Problem is, the fan base is absolutely insane to the point where they actually rioted at a McDonald's because of a novelty uh, Szechuan sauce from, which was a reference to a joke that was on limited release. So things like that, you know, I think that's <laughs> this is one of those cases, right? You're, basically, the fan you're base for the UBI for the, for the, uh, are for quite the bad. Yeah. So like, uh, there was a reply to to my piece. Uh, in I on iNews by um, Jonathan Bartley, the leader of the Green Party. And essentially, he was like, well, I sort of agree, but first of all, these guys are wrong and so you support it, so I'm, I'm a bit wary now. But second of all, they want to, you know, make it a basic income. We want it to be a basic income plus the welfare state and have this sort of utopian thing where no one actually works because yeah, actually but, yes, work they, is but, pollution. But it's, like, it's like, yeah, I mean, Jonathan, John Paul's just come out with, you know, the, the, his idea for a national everything service. It's like, okay, yeah, that's all very well, but where's the... And as with all these things, I keep coming back to it, but... I think lots of what's so appealing about them is that they seem to sort of transcend politics. So, oh, we have a clever system that provides us with everything. We won't have to have silly debates about the NHS or whatever. We have a system that provides us income. We won't have to have debates about welfare. And actually, politics will always be... There will always be people who, who want more and there will always be people who need more. And that's, you know, whatever system you have, you're going to end up with that. Mm-hmm. And on that, yeah, you know, <laughs> cheery Profound. note. Maybe we can, maybe we can, um, maybe we'll come back and discuss again when, we, when these experiments have uh, run their course, and we can, we can, we can see whether it works or not. But until then, um, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.